This is a re-recording of a sermon preached on August 15, 2021 at Stafford Baptist Church entitled, God's People Deal with Sin, from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Abdallah. I'm one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist. What a joy it is to gather with you this morning as we worship our God. This morning we are continuing in our series entitled Restoring Repentance. During the month of August, we are building a biblical framework for why and how we are to deal with sin as God's church, as his body. Well, as we begin this morning, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Imagine this morning that you are a shepherd. You can smell the flowers and the grass. You can feel the shepherd's crook in your hand. You can see the, the wonderful and beautifully fenced field where you keep 100 sheep. And these sheep are everything to you. They are your livelihood and therefore they're valued and treasured. From those sheep, you get the food and the material you need to make a living. But as we know, sheep aren't very smart. So one day, a sheep wanders away from the rest of the flock. Ninety-nine are still in the field, well cared for, but one has wandered off. In that situation, what would a good shepherd do? Well, the good shepherd would go after the, the lost sheep, even leaving the other ninety-nine in the fenced field. He would pursue it. And when he found it, he would rejoice because he loved that sheep. It was valued and treasured. But imagine with me that when he got to his sheep and found him and, and was ready to bring him home, that sheep didn't want to be found. That sheep didn't want to return. Well, that's the scenario that Jesus teaches us of teaches us in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, which is the passage that we'll be considering this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd, don't have your Bible open, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to, to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the, the, the Bibles in the pew in front of you and open to page 823 as we consider Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Well, if you didn't know, that story of a shepherd going after the lost sheep is not original to me. No, it's the story that, that Jesus tells us right before our passage here in Matthew 18. And it gives us some important context to understanding the heart of what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 18. But it's right before we go any further to stop and to read from Matthew 18 and then pray. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look to your word, we would see the face of Christ shining brightly. Lord, we we pray that, that we would come to see and know Christ more dearly and more of value and treasured in our own hearts. Lord, we pray that this would happen as you teach us your statutes, as you teach us your word, particularly for how we as a church ought to deal with lost sheep, those who have not come home. Lord, we pray for, for your help in thinking through this, that your spirit would illuminate your word for our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question that we want to consider this morning is, what are we to do when a professing Christian sins and will not repent? In other words, what do we do when a sheep wanders out of the fold and does not want to come home? Well, over the last two weeks, We've been considering the character of our God and how God's character demands that his people pursue that stray sheep, that sheep who has wandered away. God's character means that we, can, we cannot simply do nothing about the lost sheep and expect them to return on their own. No, we must pursue them. We must do this because God is holy and demands his people to be holy. And we must do this because God is love, and His love is a love that that disciplines, that instructs His people in holiness. Therefore, if we are to love like our holy God, we cannot ignore sin. We must pursue the one who is unrepentant. But we're left with the question of How? How do we deal with an unrepentant Christian who has wandered off and and has no desire to return? Well, our big idea will seek to answer that question this morning. Our big idea is this. Persevere in the process of pursuing the repentance and restoration of sinners. That's a lot of peace. Let me say that again. Persevere in the process of pursuing the repentance and restoration of sinners. The process of pursuing restoration to repentance is another way of describing the term church discipline. It's a term that, when you hear it, may cause heartache or unease. But the concept of pursuing the restoration of sinners to repentance is a biblical concept. It's a concept taught to us by Jesus himself, as we've just read here in Matthew 18. So how does the church deal with unrepentant sin in the body? Jesus' answer summed up this morning as persevere in the process of pursuing the repentance and restoration of sinners. Well, as we seek to to see that big idea in our passage from Matthew 18 this morning, we're going to do so by walking through three points that will serve as our outline. Those three points are the purpose of pursuing, the purpose of pursuing, the process of pursuing, 
So the purpose and the process, and then finally, our perseverance in pursuing. So the purpose, the process, and our perseverance. You see, friends, if we're going to persevere in the process, we must first grasp our purpose in dealing with sin. So often we misunderstand the how of church discipline because we misunderstand the goal. Think of an instruction sheet that you get when you, when you get a new board game. On those instruction sheets, you, you have like the title of the game, the person who makes it, when it was made, those kinds of things. And then the, the really the, the first part of it is what is the goal of the game? How do you win it? You reach Candyland or you make the most money. You earn the most properties. What, whatever the goal is, it starts there and then tells you how to get there with the instructions. And so we too are going to start with the goal, the end. What is the purpose of pursuing unrepentant sinners? And then we'll consider how we get there. So let's look at our first point, the purpose of pursuing in Matthew 18, verses, verse, the second half of verse 15. The purpose of pursuing. See, the end goal in dealing with sin is given by Jesus in the second half of verse 15 of Matthew 18. Listen to that again. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, Jesus says. The CSB translation reads, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You see, the goal of church discipline must be to win your unrepentant brother or sister back. This is the goal. The lost would be found, that the sinner would repent, that the treasured soul would be gained back. You see, the Christian who has sinned, who has erred, is seen by Christ as a treasure that needs to be gained or won back. This is what we see in the parable of the sheep that I made mention of earlier. So you heard my version. Let's hear what Jesus has to say and read from Matthew 18 verses 12 through 14 in Jesus's parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus tells us that the will of God, his Father, our Father, is that not one of his sheep should perish. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the heart of God for sinners. That God is our good shepherd and we are his sheep. That God has sought after us even when we went astray. You see, we were created to be made in right relationship with our God, but Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. And sin became, therefore, the condition of every one of us. We are born as sinners, conceived in iniquity. But we are the sheep meant to enjoy our God forever, yet we have wandered astray. 
in our sin. And if left to ourselves, we will die, for the wages of sin is death. Just like a sheep that wanders into the woods will die if left alone. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But the good news of the parable is that there is one who has pursued us. There is a a shepherd who has sought after us, and that is Jesus. He is our good shepherd. Who says in John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, God the Son, has pursued us by coming to earth and living the life we couldn't. He never wandered away from God. But then the Good Shepherd went to the cross and became the Lamb who bore the full wrath of God in our place for our sins, laying down His life, but taking it up again three days later, so that we might live with Him. You see, brothers and sisters, this is how God has pursued us. He's pursued us in Christ Jesus. And this is true for everyone who believes in Him and repents of their sin, turning from their sin, and trusting in Christ. And God has done this because He treasures His people. Not because we have deserved it or we've earned it, but because God has set His love upon us in Christ Jesus. Christ has valued us, His sheep. And He's pursued us. And so now when sheep go astray, when, when we sin as Christians, because we will, we still sin. We're not perfect yet on this side of heaven. But when we sin as Christians and we don't repent, Jesus calls us to pursue those unrepentant Christians as we've been pursued by Him. They ought to be pursued not for the the purpose of shunning or retaliating, but to rescue, because that's how God has pursued us. To win them back. But what does it look like to win your brother back? What does Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 18, 15, if he listens to you? Well, I think to be one back is to receive the admonition of a, of a fellow Christian and to respond with repentance. See, to win a brother back is to see the offender repent and the offended, the one who's been sinned against, forgive. Notice Peter's question in Matthew 18, 21 through 22. This is right after our text that we read earlier, 15 through 20. This is So Peter's just heard Jesus' instructions, and this is what he says. Then Peter came up and said to him, who is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. See, Peter hears Jesus' instructions on the process of pursuing church discipline, and he doesn't ask, but, but doesn't that seem unloving? Isn't that too hard for, for us? What, what gives us the right to do that? No, Peter asks, how often am I to forgive my brother? He understands that the purpose of Jesus' teaching here is to see repentance and forgiveness. And Jesus' answers to him, you're going to do this over and over and over again. Well, what does it show us? 
what to win a brother is to see repentance. That's why we've entitled our sermon series here in August, Restoring Repentance. Church discipline is the process of pursuing, restoring repentance. Well, what is repentance? Repentance is godly sorrow for sin and a change in mind and heart towards obedience in Christ. It's godly sorrow for sin and a change in mind and heart towards obedience in Christ. See how Paul describes the repentance of the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes there, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. This is what repentance is. It's a turning from our sin to follow Jesus. See, it's not merely sorrow over or just a recognition of our wrongdoing. No, it's a sorrow that leads to turning. It's a godly grief that produces eagerness to clear ourselves, indignation and fear and longing and zeal. And what we come to see is that repentance is to be the life, the posture of life for a Christian. Martin Luther, in his 99 thesis that he nailed to to the castle door, put his first thesis this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, repentance is not just a one-time thing. It is the entire life of believers. Again and again as we sin, our posture ought to be repentance. And so the lost sheep is is not one who who does not sin. No, he's one who, when he sins, refuses to repent. And so our goal in pursuing an erring brother or sister is to see them return to this life posture of repentance but it's not just that see the the restoration to repentance also must mean forgiveness from the offended right that's what peter asks about that's what jesus teaches forgiveness is a a clearing of debt no longer does that sin affect their relationship just as we read in psalm 103 god no longer deals with us according to our iniquities we too once a, a brother or sister repents are to no longer deal with them according to their sins, but are to clear their debt and to restore our fellowship with them. That's ultimately what it means to win a brother back. It's to reaffirm our love for them, to welcome them back. This is what restoring repentance looks like. You can think here about the, the prodigal son parable in Luke 15. At that, in that parable, we see every stage of, of what this process is to look like. First, we see the sin, the unrepentant sin. The, the son goes to the father, demands his, his inheritance, and then leaves, goes into the world, lives as if he, he was in the world and not his father's son. 
he gets reaches the, the lowest point there, and he recognizes his sin, and he's going to change. He returns to his father, right? So he doesn't just recognize it, but he repents. He, he turns, committed to do what is right. So we see repentance. But then we see forgiveness as the, the father runs to his son and clears his debt. And we see the restoration as the father gives him the family ring, the clothes, and ultimately throws him this party, rejoicing that the one has come back. This, brothers and sisters, is the goal of church discipline. We say it this way in, in our church, the Baptist Church's bylaws. We say there, all discipline is to aim at the reconciliation and restoration of an erring member. Or as John MacArthur put it last week, as we saw, restoration, not retribution, is always the goal. So brothers and sisters, what is your goal? What is your aim in pursuing an erring member? Is your aim retribution? To lay down a heavy stick? Or is your aim restoration? To see repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. When we are rightly aimed, we can rightly pursue. And the right aim is the full restoration of a repentant sinner. Therefore, brothers and sisters, persevere in the process of pursuing the repentance and restoration of sinners. Well, that's where we're going, right? That's, that's, the, that's how we win the game, so to speak. But how do we get there? What happens when, when the, the unrepentant Christian doesn't listen the first time or the second time or the third time? What can we as pursuers do? Well, let's look at the process of pursuing. The process of pursuing. And here we can go back to Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus gives us clear instructions on the process. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What we see in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 is what Jesus sets up as the normative process for how a church deals with sin. This is normally how a church pursues sinners. There may be situations that demand skipping earlier steps, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 5, but those are the exceptions, not the rule. Well, in these verses, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus sets up a, a hypothetical but often recurring scenario where one member sins against another member. But Jesus' instructions are not limited here to only those times when there's an offender, someone who sins against another, and an offended, the one who's been sinned against. But this is the way that the church is to deal with any unrepentant sin in the body. Hear Paul's words from Galatians 6.1 to demonstrate this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What is Paul teaching? 
He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Well, how do we restore him? What, what process, what steps do we go about restoring him in a spirit of gentleness? This, this brother who has been caught in, in any kind of transgression. Well, it's the process that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. See, when, it's, when there is unrepentant sin in the body, it's the responsibility of, of the other members to go to that erring brother and to pursue his restoration to repentance. And this is particularly true when we are sinned against, as Jesus says in Matthew 18. We're to pursue restoration. But it's, it's, the, it's the way we ought to live as church in every situation where there is unrepentant sin. And it's important to note that, that church discipline, the, the process of pursuing discipline, only becomes necessary when our self-discipline fails. Church discipline comes when self-discipline fails. Self-discipline or self-control is mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. And self-discipline is the ability to not be controlled by our emotions or desires. And the ideal is that we would always be self-disciplined. right? We never give in to our anger or our lust or our selfish desires. But the truth is that even as Christians, we fail to be self-disciplined. right? We sin against others. But when we fail to discipline ourselves, what what happens? What do we need? Well, we need a friend, someone to come alongside us privately to help us discipline ourselves. And if if we repent and and restore ourselves back to a a life of self-discipline, then that's it. But if we're still unable to self-discipline, then we need maybe two friends, and maybe eventually the church. And the goal is to be restored into right fellowship with God and man and back to practicing the fruit of the Spirit, self-discipline. So while Jesus doesn't mention self-discipline in Matthew 18, really the, the, the sin that he's dealing with is a result of a failure of self-discipline. And so as we think about the process of restoring repentance, we, we actually should start there in self-discipline. But when self-discipline fails, what is the process for restoring an erring member? Well, we see four steps from Jesus in Matthew 18. And we can think of these four steps in three words. Private, partner, and public. And then public is split into two parts, public admonition and public removal. This alliteration of private partner public is not original to me, but I do think it's helpful. So first, private, looking at verse 15, private correction. Let's let's set up a scenario here. A fellow member, we'll, we'll call him Joe Schmo. Joe comes to you and and begins to to slander another brother or sister in this church. That is, he begins to speak poorly and falsely of of this other member. Well, what are we to do? Well, we're called by Jesus to go to him and tell him his fault privately between us and him alone with the aim that he will see a sin, feel godly sorrow and repent so that restoration can occur. So note that this step is informal and private. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, Jesus says there in verse 15. So at this point, the the circle of information is small. No one but you and this erring member, Joe Schmo, know what's going on. 
And that circle should only widen if necessary to move on, right, to the next step of this process. But in this first step, we are commanded to go to our brother who has sinned. And note, Jesus doesn't give us an option. This process is not something that we can pass the buck on. No, we must obey what our Savior commands. We must pursue reconciliation and restoration to repentance. And this command falls to every member. Every believer has a responsibility to pursue repentance, restoration, and reconciliation. To not pursue church discipline is to not obey Jesus. To to not pursue the process of pursuing repentance and restoration is to fail to obey Jesus. It's, It's to fail to pursue as we've been pursued. And the good news is, when, when we do this first step positively, when this first step is being done well, the process of church discipline, of restoring repentance, stops here. That when this process is happening, the other steps occur far less likely. In fact, I'm sure even this week, you can, you can think back to a time when you've practiced, quote-unquote, the process of pursuing restoration. Maybe your spouse, another member of this church, says, your spouse spoke angrily to you and you confronted them and they repented. That's Matthew 18, 15. Maybe your friend in this church made an inappropriate joke and you let them know and they repented. Matthew 18, 15. See, this step is, is happening all the time, again and again and again. But often when we think of church discipline, we, we tend to think of the final two steps, the public part of the process. But when we do this step or, or the next step well, those two steps become far less occurring. And so we should strive to, to, to pursue private correction well. And what do we, what do we need to do this well? Well, we need to remember our purpose to see restoration. See, remembering our purpose will help us approach the the process properly at every step, including this first step. So four ways that remembering our purpose of seeing restoration helps us to rightly approach this first step of private correction. If our purpose is, is to see restoration, first, that means that we ought to be intentional to watch over one another in brotherly love. Watch over one another in brotherly love. See, this is what we've promised to do in our membership covenant here at Stafford Baptist. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love. Part of church membership is the responsibility of watching over one another and being watched over so that we might speak the truth in love to one another, ready to forgive and restore. So, brothers and sisters, do you have relationships in this church in which you are opening your own life to be watched over? Are you seeking to know others well enough to, to, so that you can lovingly keep watch over their souls? Are you being intentional to watch over one another? That's where this step happens, right? If we're not watching over one another's lives, then sin can kind of build up. And as sin builds up, it becomes a lot harder to repent of 
and, and, and often leads to us moving towards those last two steps. So watch over one another's lives. Be committed to, to be honest and transparent. And be committed to seeking to love others by, by asking good questions. So that's first, be intentional, watch over one another. The second way that we, should, we, we could put into practice this private correction is remembering the six keys to correcting other Christians that we considered last week. So the six keys were pray, remove the log, ask clarifying questions, use scripture, be honest, gentle, and patient, and pray. And we'll summarize that, right? We, we go not from an attitude of pride, but of humility. We go not to condemn, but to understand. We go not on matters of preference or conscience, but matters of sin as seen in the Bible. We go not to skirt around the issue, but to address it honestly and gently and patiently. And we go soaked in prayer because we are in desperate need of help from our Heavenly Father. This is what it looks like to to remember those six keys. So as we seek to approach this first step well, we, we start by being intentional to watch over one another. Then we remember the six keys to correcting others. And then we ought to be ready to forgive. That's the third way. Be ready to forgive. Jesus teaches us in, in Luke 17, 3-4 this. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I wonder, brother and sister, if, if you say to yourself, well, I have no problem correcting sin in other people's lives. But you are slow to forgive. Every time the erring or brother, sister or brother or sister repents, Jesus says, you must forgive. So we must be ready and willing to forgive. Finally, fourth way that we seek to properly approach this first step is a, a willingness to be patient. Be willing to be patient. If you know, in, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us no time limit on this first step, or really any of these steps. It's a matter of wisdom and discernment. But a, a good general principle is, if the person is willing to converse with you about the matter, then be slow to move to the next step. So think of Joe Shmo. Joe has slandered this other brother or sister, and you go to Joe and you say, Joe, I, I, you came up to me yesterday and you were slandering this other brother, and I just want you to know that that's not honoring to God, that that's a sin that, that you need to repent of. Well, Joe may not respond right away with, oh, you're right, I repent. But he may respond by going, hmm, I, I didn't think I was slandering. Can you help me maybe understand that? And you can converse some more. He hasn't repented, but he also isn't shut off. He's willing to have a conversation. And, and our hope is to see him repent. And so we're going to be patient in that process. Our hope is this, that our, our brother will hear our correction, will turn from his sin in repentance, and that reconciliation and restoration will occur, and that the discipline ends there. And we seek to do this by, by being intentional to watch over one another, by remembering the keys to correcting other Christians, by being ready to forgive and willing to be patient in our private correction. But, unfortunately, Jesus' instructions don't end there. 
What if they don't repent? Well, Jesus gives us our next steps in Matthew 18, verse 16. Let's read it again. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. See, Christians... Well, let me stop there. Yeah, we ought to partner with one another. That's the second step, partner. So our first step was private. Our second step now is, is partner. See, Christians make mistakes. We can ignorantly or deliberately make false accusations of others. And so in the process of discipline, Jesus says we ought to bring some partners along to ensure the charges being made. If our brother won't repent, it could be that he won't repent because he actually hasn't done anything wrong. Or it could be that he needs to hear from others the call to repent. I think here in, in, in 18 verse 16, Jesus is making reference to Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So here in Deuteronomy 19, God is giving protection for the accused. A charge must be established by multiple witnesses. And so too, in the process of pursuing repentance, Christians are to seek a partner or two to go with them in addressing the erring member if they continue to be unrepentant. Jesus doesn't want a member or a, a brother or sister to be falsely accused. Now, these witnesses are not witnesses of the actual sin, but witnesses that the brother or sister is still refusing to repent. And so because of that, they're, they're actually not Witnesses in the sense of sitting on the sideline, but they're active participants. Jesus will imply their participation as those who are to admonish and encourage the erring member. So if, if you look at verse 17 of Matthew 18, Jesus says there, if he refuses to listen to them. So they're not to sit on the sideline, but they're to serve as counselors calling the erring brother or sister to repent. Well, that means that the, the brothers, sisters who are the witnesses should be those who are spiritually mature. It could be that at this point you come to the elders and, and, you, and you say, hey, this brother has, has sinned and, and I need some help in addressing him. And, and you bring one of them along with you or two of them along with you. Or it could be that you go to find an older sister who's mature and, and you go to her and say, hey, can you help me address this sister? Well, let's pick up our example from earlier. Joe, Joe Smos landed another member. And you prayerfully, humbly, gently approached him. You sought to privately correct him, but, but he shows a refusal to repent and listen to you. So now you've moved on to the next step and you've brought two others. And likely what, what would happen here is that, that you would, those, those one or two brothers, sisters that you brought with us will, would sit between you and Joe and they would mediate. They would hear both sides of the, the story. They, they would seek wisdom and discernment. And if it's clear that Joe was in unrepentant sin, they called Joe to repentance. Again, remembering our purpose to see restoration, doing it in a spirit of gentleness, not to whack with a stick or team up against Joe, but to encourage and admonish him to repentance. But it's also possible that this, these counselors or witnesses come in and, and after hearing, tells the accuser that actually they are wrong. There's been a misunderstanding, not a sin action, that Joe actually hadn't slandered anybody, and therefore the accuser needs to repent to Joe for falsely accusing him. 
and they need to pursue reconciliation and restoration that way. So again, the, the point is, is not the, the exact details of, of how that goes about, but that Jesus says we are to bring mature brothers or sisters who are actively participating in pursuing the repentance process in love. That if the first step fails, we, we come to partner. And at this point, the process is still relatively informal. No formal action has been asked of the church. And in many ways, this is really just what good and faithful discipleship looks like. This is what it means to watch over one another, to speak the truth in love, to admonish one another. But if the erring member continues to not listen, to be unrepentant, then these one or two others will serve as witnesses to the whole church. And our next step, public admonition. Public admonition. And just to clarify from the beginning, by public, what we mean is publicly to the church, the, the, the whole body. At this point, most in the church will not be aware of the sin. The circle of knowledge has been kept small, but now what's happening is, is what was small is being made public. The whole church will know. So again, public refers not to the general population of the world, of our community in Stafford, but public within the church. Jesus will use the word ecclesia twice in verse 17. This is the word that, that came to refer to the church, the, the gathering of the called out ones. I think Jesus, therefore, is referring to the, the local expression of his kingdom, local churches, those who have committed to one another to do each other's spiritual good on the way to heaven. That's where these these instructions are to be practiced most regularly. Hear how Jesus continues in his instructions in Matthew eighteen seventeen. Jesus says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Well, at this point, the process goes from informal to formal. If the elders have not been involved in step two, they are involved really in, in between step two and step three. It's the elders that will lead this process. In our bylaws, we, we stipulate that this step of public admonition happens at a, a regular or specially called members meeting. We don't do this in front of the whole world at a service, but we tell the church, our local church, publicly, the gathered called out ones. And at this time, the situation is made clear. All the pertinent information is shared so that the church is equipped to admonish. This doesn't mean that every single detail of every single conversation needs to be written out. No, what, what Jesus is instructing is just that one or two people give, give this, the, the, the information that's necessary to pursue repentance. And then the church is given time to admonish this erring member. This could be a period of a few weeks or a couple of months. We don't specify an exact amount of time. But during this time, these members are calling, visiting, writing letters. We can think of Joe Schmo again, right? Joe Schmo has slandered. And so at this point, it's been brought before the church. The witnesses have, have made known that Joe is refusing to repent. And so the church is encouraged to, to call Joe, to go to Joe's house, to write Joe's letters, and to call him to repent, to tell him that slander is an affront to God's nature and character. And to call him to repent. Again, remember our purpose to see restoration and repentance. All of this done with an attitude of love and gentleness. We're not retaliating in anger, but we're seeking to admonish in love. 
We can think of here, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, at this point in the process, we still understand the erring member to be a Christian. And so our interactions with him or, or her are informed by that. But it's possible that after some time, the erring member continues in their unrepentant state. And at that point, Jesus tells us this in the second half of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which brings us to the final step of the process, public removal. Well, by the language of Gentile and tax collector, Jesus makes clear that we are to treat these brothers or sisters as one whose profession of faith we can no longer affirm. We are to treat them as unbelievers because by every standard we can measure, they are no longer living in a way that agrees with their profession of faith. It's important here to remember that we as people cannot make heart judgments. We do not know hearts. So when we welcome people into church membership and when we remove them, we're doing so based on whether or not we can affirm their profession of faith. This is why when someone joins our church, we have them give their testimony before the church at the members meeting. It's why our elders in elder interviews with prospective new members have them explain how they came to be saved and what their life has looked like. Not because we are making the final judgment, you are or you are not a Christian, but because we're seeking to say we can affirm your profession of faith or we can't. And so in this final step, we are declaring as a church when we remove someone, then we can no longer affirm their profession of faith. As far as we can tell, they are no longer living as Christians and have no desire to pursue repentance. And so we are now functionally going to treat them that way. Jay Adams, in his book on church discipline, says this, The judgment is a functional one. That is to say, the church in all her relationships to him functions as it does towards an unregenerate person. It's a functional judgment. We're not saying you're, you're not a Christian and you're never going to be a Christian. What we're saying is, as of now, we cannot affirm your profession of faith. And so we can no longer live as if we can. And friends, this is done in mourning. We lament at the hardness of this person's heart. And we beg the Lord. We would pray eagerly that the Lord would soften their hearts. No one wants to see this happen. No one wants to get to this step. It's why Jesus has put so many other steps before it. But again, it serves us to remember our purpose. Even this final step, even public removal, is not a good riddance. It's the sea restoration of repentance happening. Even in this final step of sending someone out of the church, removing someone, is to see them actually return and come home. Well, what does this public removal with the aim of repentance look like? Well, let's go back to Joe. Poor Joe here in our, our example. Joe has continued in his unrepentance so that he was removed from the formal membership of the church. What does that mean? Well, it means Joe Schmo, in, in most cases, would be welcome and even encouraged to join us on Sunday mornings. He'd be welcome to, to come to our gatherings. 
but he would not be welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper or serve in any capacity. He would be removed from formal membership, but like all unbelievers, he would be encouraged to join us on Sunday mornings. It also means that our conversations with Joe are going to change. We're going to look for ways to proclaim the gospel to him. Even if he says he's a Christian, because we can no longer affirm it, our relationship with Joe has to functionally change, and we're going to seek to proclaim the gospel to him. When we see him in the grocery store, we're going to try and turn that conversation to the gospel. When we see him at a baseball game, we're going to try and turn that conversation to the gospel. I think our bylaws here at Stafford have just put it well again. It says there, While the responsibility of the church members is to withhold fellowship from the individual who is unrepentant. So stop there. That is, it's, it's responsibility that if an unrepentant person continues in his unrepentance, we have the responsibility to remove them from formal membership. Withhold fellowship. It is also fully the responsibility of the membership to continue to treat the unrepentant individual with love and to continue to seek the individual's repentance and restoration with the body of Christ as if he or she was an unregenerate person as his or her actions may have begun to reveal. So brothers and sisters, we must remember our purpose is to see them repent and restored to fellowship with God and with his body. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is a hard thing. This is awkward. It's not easy, and we don't expect it to be. But Jesus gives us encouragement to keep on persevering in this process of pursuing the repentance and restoration of sinners. And so that brings us to our final point, the, our perseverance in pursuing. So here in, in verses 18 through 20, it's almost as if Jesus knows. He looks at us and he says, he knows that this process, though it has a wonderful purpose, is going to be found difficult and intimidating. And so he closes this passage on the process of pursuing repentance and restoration by directing us to two encouragements, Jesus' power and Jesus' presence. Let's look at verses 18 through 20 again. Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So the first promise is found in verse 18. This binding and loosing language is the language of authority or power. This ties our passage with a previous passage in Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus gives his body the keys to the kingdom. And he gives it to everyone who confesses like Peter a right confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what Jesus makes clear in Matthew 18, 18 is that this authority to bind and loose sits not with just one man, Peter, but with every confessor of Jesus Christ, the church. Well, what's this authority for? Well, I think in context it becomes clear that the bind and loose language has to do with binding and loosing those who are professing Christians. Binding is the affirming of a believer's profession, and loosing is the letting go, removing a member, because we can no longer affirm the profession. Jay Adams is helpful again here, where he says, Christ is saying, so he's, these are his kind of version of Christ's words, Christ is saying, I give you the authority to exercise discipline, permitting and prohibiting those things that I've either authorized or forbidden in my word. You exercise my authority, and heaven itself backs you up. 
Heaven itself backs you up. See, when the church exercises discipline at any level, but particularly at that final step, we are exercising an authority given to us by Jesus, and we are assured that heaven itself is behind our assessment. This ought to quell any concerns of what right does the church have to practice this kind of discipline. Because the right and the authority is given to us by Jesus to neglect, to not use it, is to miss out on something that Jesus has given us. Not only the authority, but the responsibility to do. And so if we're marked by prayer, and searching the scriptures, and humble and gentle correction, and patience, then we can be assured that the power of Jesus is with us. That when we make this decision to loose, that that reflects a truth already true in heaven. But not only are we promised Jesus' power, we are promised that Jesus himself, his very presence, is with us in verses 19 through 20. Jesus tells his disciples that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. See, when God's church prays, God answers. Because where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he is there among them. Often we hear this promise and we understand that when any two or three Christians are together, Jesus is there. And a part of that is true. Praise God. We are indwelled by God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He is omnipresent and, and present with us at all times and in every way. But I think the context tells us that likely Jesus is talking about the church. It's a particular gathering of God's people in the name of Jesus. And I think in context it refers to when the church gathers particularly to enact discipline. Even that final step of discipline. We're promised Jesus' presence. As we prayerfully work through discipline, as we meet to remove a person, we are encouraged by Jesus that He is with us, that He has not left us. So, brothers and sisters, when a situation arises and we can't see another way forward other than to practice this final step, Jesus is with us. When discipline is pursued prayerfully, patiently, and purposefully, we can be assured that even if it ends in removal, Jesus is with us. That the outcome is not against his will, but he is there with us in the midst. Well, two ways, as we are encouraged to persevere in the process, we can live. Two, two ways. First, pray. Brothers and sisters, our wisdom is not infallible, but God's is. Our discernment is not perfect, but God's is. Our will is not always True, but God's is. And so we ought to pray. That's what Jesus says, right? Where two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father. So brothers and sisters, that means we pray. God will answer those prayers. He will answer our prayers for wisdom. He will answer our prayers for patience and for clarity and for repentance and for restoration, and for His glory to be accomplished, even in something that seems so difficult. So we pray, but secondly, we persist, because true change is possible. See, we can persevere in this process, because with the promise of Jesus' power and presence, we know true change is possible. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me encourage you. Maybe you, you, this sounds unloving to you. Or maybe you're here and you don't think true change is possible. That's 
not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that true change is possible. And so we persevere in this practice to, to see people being brought to repentance and faith. And so if you're here and you don't think true change is possible, I would, I would love to talk with you about how you can know true change through repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. True change is possible. And this is good news for us as Christians as well. Discipline is awkward and it's not easy, but Jesus promises his presence until we can be confident that true change is possible. That, that as we persevere in this process, we can be confident that Jesus will produce this desired result. And that desired result could be repentance and restoration. Therefore, persevere in the process of pursuing restoration. Because Jesus promises his power and presence, brothers and sisters, persevere in the process of pursuing repentance and restoration of sinners. Don't give up. This is how the church deals with sin. You know that lost sheep that we talked about? Well, they exist in our church, brothers and sisters. There are those who, who wander away and at times don't want to repent. This is how God calls us to pursue them. And we do it as often as necessary. Not to flash our power. Not to say, look how good we are. Look how, how right I am. But because it's an authority and a responsibility given to us by Jesus himself. And he promises to be with us in the midst of it. Therefore, persevere in the process of pursuing repentance and restoration of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed at the promise of Jesus' presence when two or three gather in his name. That in this very gathering, we have been assured that Jesus is present. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to put into practice this process of pursuing repentance and restoration. Lord, help us to remember the purpose. Father, it is so easy to forget the purpose and therefore to, to be wrongly aimed in our process. Lord, help us to, to remember your purpose of seeing restoration. Lord, help us to, to pursue this process patiently and properly. Lord, help us to do so with gentleness and humility. And Father, help us to persevere, knowing that this is the process by which you have ordained to show that you will hold your people fast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.